0: Uh, yeah, welcome to everybody here this morning. Great to see you. If you're new, particularly welcome to you. My name's Philip and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Abby says, we're going to be continuing with our Ask London series. And as Abby indicated, our desire as a church is to listen to... And engage with, really, the questions and objections and thoughts that our friends, family, workmates, culture has about the Christian faith. So, without further ado, why don't we roll the video for this morning and we'll see what topic we're going to be engaging with today. Why is it deemed to be a sin and immoral um, to have sex before marriage? You know, it's like the 21st century. We're not, like, in the Victorian times anymore. If... God exists and is real and it's all about peace and love and all of that, then do what the hell you like. Your life is your life and as long as you're not hurting anyone else, that shouldn't be an issue. How can I feel accepted when when so many people still see homosexuality as a sin? I go to a performing arts college and I'm surrounded by people who like the same gender and I'm completely used to it and so should everybody be by now. And whether that is to be a nun, great, or if that's to be a street walker, And then find love with Richard Gere. Could it not also just be an extension of um, showing your love and feelings towards someone in a very committed relationship um, prior to actually getting married? Or in fact, if you never really want to get married. Why does God care who I have sex with? Just uh, I want to say before we continue, we're just ever so grateful to the people that have uh, contributed to these videos. We really are. I think it takes no small amount of courage and honesty to put these questions to camera. So thank you very much if you're here. Thank you very much if you know the people that produce those videos. And if you are here particularly to explore this question, this topic, then we're just ever so glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time to come and explore this whole thing. I guess there's a number of things, aren't there, going on in that set of video clips. Perhaps two primary things, I think, are taking place. Two primary objections, I think, are coming through. One is an objection to Christians and how they have treated the issue of sexuality, and in particular, gay people. And the second objection, I think, is more to God, as came through at the end. Why would he care who I have sex with? Why would he care who I sleep with? What we're going to do really is spend the majority of our 30-35 minutes on the second question. But I do want us to take a few moments to engage with the first question. The objection to Christians and how they treated the issue of sexuality and those that are gay in particular. And a couple of weeks ago, if you were here or you've caught up on the podcast, we looked at the question of judgmental and hypocritical Christians. And I guess I've said then and I'll say again that the reality is that many Christians do get things horribly wrong. And I would suggest that if anyone has borne the brunt of that tendency over the years, the decades, it has been those who are gay or those who have expressed doubts about their sexuality or about the issue of sexuality in general. And this week I've been looking at some surveys and some literature on both sides of the Atlantic on this whole issue, and I found it, I have to say, a pretty uh, pretty sobering experience, if I'm honest. And two things have jumped out at me from looking at some of these surveys and literature. Both here and in the States. One thing is the incredibly high number of people who have faced rejection and condemnation on account of their sexuality from within the very church they grew up with or were associated with. And the second thing that's jumped out is just how many LGBT people feel that the church is the last place that they would go to if they wanted help or to explore community or even to explore faith. The last place. And I found that deeply sad reading, and I think, frankly, it's a sad indictment on the church. But it's also true to say that, that isn't everyone; hasn't been everyone's experience. Uh, some gay people do have a different story of their encounters with the local church. This is Sam Albury. I don't know Sam personally, but I know people who do. And uh, I follow him on, on Twitter, and I've read and listened to some of his work. And I think he himself can speak with considerable authenticity because he's a same-sex, attractive man himself. That's how he's always been. I don't think he has any expectation of that that changing in the future. And he's written a fascinating book called Is God Anti-Gay? Which I would heartily recommend. It's a fascinating read. And as I say, I think he can write with some considerable authenticity. And actually, his story is one of love and acceptance and kindness from within his local church in Maidenhead. In fact, he's now one of, the, one of the pastors there. And for us here as a church in Kingston, it's our desire to be a genuinely welcoming community, regardless of background and worldview. You see, for us, we recognize that the two primary commands for a Christian are to love God and love our neighbor. That's the bottom line for Christians. And that's our primary motivating factor when we engage with the community around us. We want to love people as a reflection of God's love for us and them. That's the bottom line for us. And so when, for example, we try and show love to those at the local food bank or those at Kingston Community School or the Joel Community Night Shelter or through local fostering and adoption, we're not asking people who they're sleeping with or who they're not sleeping with. Don't care. And the same is true when we meet you on a Sunday or connect with you in other ways. The bottom line for us is that God loves you and we love you. And we're really glad to be connected with you. So to the second issue of what is it, why does God care who we sleep with? Which is the question that came through at the end. And I guess the question is a really helpful one because it assumes that God does care. And he does care who we sleep with. And that in itself is a a deeply unpopular idea amongst our culture and community. The Bible teaches what's even more unpopular. That the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ made sex for one context to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in marriage. No other parties, no other exceptions. If you're a guest, it's very tempting for me to hide that from you for a little bit. We want to be upfront and authentic with you. And that's what the Bible teaches. Anyone who's ever read the Bible carefully or has has looked at the teaching of the church for the last 2,000 years, years really will conclude and that is very unpopular. And a lot of people, understandably, will find that kind of teaching deeply, deeply hard. Not least because, of course, it rules out all kinds of different other options. It rules out, for example, women having sex with men who are married to someone else rules out men having sex with women who are married to someone else rules out men having sex with men, women having sex with women, men having sex with unmarried women, women having sex with unmarried men and so on and so forth because God seems to make it pretty clear right the way throughout the Bible that sex is his gift. It's from him and it's to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within marriage But listen, before I get any further, can I just make it clear that none of those things or other things are in any way like beyond the pale or unforgivable or the worst thing that anyone can do? Let's be blunt about it. Plenty of people in this church, including me, have failed to treat sex as God has intended and have found and have met with the kindness and the love and the forgiveness of God. I doubt there are many people in this room who at some time, either with someone of the same sex or someone with the opposite sex, haven't at some point treated sex in a way that isn't God's ideal. It does not mean that God writes us off. There's always love and restoration available from him. There really is. Now at the same time, I absolutely recognize that many people, maybe in this room, maybe listening to this might say, listen, I I don't need the forgiveness of God. I, I I don't, I'm not looking for God's reconciliation for my sexual ethics. In fact, why would God care anyway who I sleep with? And these are good questions. We want to engage with these questions. Let's engage with this question of why would God even care who we have sex with? I want to do that in three steps, if you like, three premises. Here's premise one. Everyone cares who people sleep with, so why would God be any different? If we conducted a survey I think in the room this morning, I think we would all of us have different views. We'd all have a view on what kind of sexual activity is right and is wrong. I suspect that pretty much everyone in Kingston, for example, would think that if I was to sleep with someone else who wasn't my wife, that would be morally wrong. I think pretty much everyone in Kingston would say if I was to have sex with my sister or with three other women or with a 13-year-old girl or a 13-year-old boy, people would say that it's morally wrong. I think almost everyone would say that. In fact, the National Survey of Sexual Lifestyle Attitudes that was released a couple of years ago is a fascinating read. I haven't read the whole thing, but the summary of it is a fascinating read because it concludes that actually people nowadays are more concerned with sexual ethics, what's right and wrong morally, than actually they were 20 or 30 years ago. So actually this week is, I think, the week's anniversary, if that's the right expression, of the, the Ashley Madison scandal that you might remember a, week, uh, a year ago this week. Ashley Madison was the dating site that encouraged married people to have an affair. Do you remember its tagline was, life is short, have an affair. And it hit the headlines because an awful lot of its data, personal data, which of course was highly sensitive to the millions of people using it, was stolen and published. Now not all, but many people really expressed their dismay last year that such a site should exist one that uh, pretty brazenly promoted infidelity we shouldn't be doing that many people felt not just christians many people felt that you see everyone believes there should be limits in some way on who gets to sleep with who so why wouldn't god care as well now I, i do appreciate that that premise does assume that god is the god of the bible that he is a God who cares about those, his created creatures, that he is personal and that he's not uh, distant or a, merely an agency or a force or an energy. But assuming he is the former, I think it's fair to say that given all of us have a view on who sleeps with who, then it, it kind of makes sense that God would as well. So therefore I think the question is not so much about uh, whether God, why God cares about sex at all, but the question I think more is, why is his view of sex different to ours? Why, is his, why are his values different? Step two, if there is a God and he has timeless ethical standards, what, wouldn't you expect that every culture and civilization at some point would find itself disagreeing with the God, with God at some point about something? slightly convoluted premise, but I hope you can see what I'm driving at. You see, think about all the different cultures there are around the world and all the different cultures that there have been throughout the history of the world and imagine on how many cultural and philosophical and ethical issues they would disagree. So if God is always the same and his ethical standards are always the same, you would expect, therefore, wouldn't you, every culture at some point to disagree with him about something. I think that's logical to say. Now again, the premise here is that God does exist. And we looked at that in week one, and you can catch up with that on the podcast. But if he does, and he's unchanging and eternal, then logically it stacks up that every civilization would have some values that God would affirm and some values that God would challenge, yeah? So for example, in many cultures today, they would agree with uh, the biblical teaching on sex, but they would really struggle with biblical teaching on forgiveness and grace, you go to different parts of the world and they would say, I've got a real problem with this teaching about forgiveness and grace because where does that leave like, the need for punishment? And what about revenge and retribution and, and the honor of the injured party? My culture means, means it's really hard for me to engage with that. But the same people would probably say, God's teaching on sex. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And of course, in our British culture, it's the other way around, isn't it? We kind of largely love the idea of forgiveness, but many of us would object strongly to the idea that sex is for one man and one woman within marriage. People would say, I find that incredibly hard and difficult to hear. But I think it's worth noting that these views, British 21st century Western views, they are very different to around 6 billion of the seven billion people in the world, and they're quite different to the views held in Britain only 50 years ago, and they're probably different to the views held in Britain 50 years from now. So I think we'd have to have rather a lot of cultural superiority to say that our generation at this point in this nation has got it right on this issue. And neither I don't think can we necessarily say, because God's views are different to many, 21st century British people, and therefore God doesn't exist. Not sure that stacks up logically. I don't think it's logical to say, because my sexual ethic differs from that held by the God of the Bible, therefore that discredits everything else contained in the Bible, including the, the life and claims of Christ and the claims to his resurrection. Don't think that is a logical formulation? You see, sexual ethics in reality are formed due to deeply, deeply held, pretty complex views of what sex actually is, the definition of it. You see, you could be debating with someone about sexual ethics, and actually the reason you're disagreeing, hopefully graciously and respectfully, is not primarily because you disagree about who should have sex with whom, it's because you disagree about what sex actually is. Uh, at this point I found uh, Andrew Wilson really helpful on this stuff he is an uh, academic and author and, and church pastor is really helpful for this talk and indeed this series and He says this, and i think he 's right that if you were to approach the average secular british person let 's say for our purposes, you, you approach someone outside the Bental Center in Kingston, and if you were to ask them what is sex, assuming they didn 't run for the hills, assuming they did stay with you and continue the conversation, the answer they would give you would probably be something like this. Sex is an enjoyable, intimate experience between two consenting adults. Therefore, if that's what sex is, of course, it logically follows that sex is for any adult to use who is consenting. But Andrew goes on to say that if you you went to more traditional cultures and asked them the same question, and they too hung around to answer you, they would probably say sex is an act of union between two adults already joined in lifelong commitment to one another, which produces physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, and perhaps children. And of course if that's what sex is, then that also changes like who gets to use it, and in what context. Well, thirdly, the, the biblical view of what marriage is is similar to that traditional view that I've just explained. The Bible would say, yes, sex is an act of union between two adults already joined in lifelong commitment to one another, which produces physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, and perhaps children. But even more than that, the Bible would say sex is a picture. It's a beautiful picture. That's what it's designed to be. The Bible would say that sex within marriage is a unique picture specifically of how God relates to his people. So for example, it's there as a picture, a reflection, because it mirrors the permanence of the commitment between God and his people. It's a way of two people saying, I belong exclusively and only to you, just as God says that to people. And sex in a marriage between a man and a woman demonstrates very uniquely the difference and otherness of God as creator and people as created. The difference and otherness of Jesus Christ and the church. It's a picture that points to something truly enormous and beautiful. And you can read more about this in Ephesians 5 that you probably heard, uh, read at weddings from time to time. Now again, I'm aware that I'm referencing the Bible here And we did look last week, Paul looked last week at why there is good evidence to suggest that the Bible deserves to be taken seriously. Why it can be viewed, uh, why we do view it as highly reliable and even authoritative. And again, you can catch up with that on the podcast. But the point is that in each of these three cases, the average secular person in Kingston, the person from a traditional culture, and the Christian, it's because of what they believe sex is, what it's for, but they will then have different convictions about how it's used and by whom and in what context. And of course, what you believe sex is for, I think, is also very closely linked to what you believe about human flourishing more broadly. So I think it's fair to say that for many people in our modern world, human flourishing primarily is about choice, being able to choose as you see fit. And therefore, God can seem anti-flourishing because he's restraining my choice in some way. And so the question therefore comes, how can God be a God of love and a God who genuinely wants humans to flourish if he's restricting how I can use sex? And listen, please hear me, I'm not belittling those questions. They're good questions to ask. And neither am I belittling how deeply felt our desires for sexual intimacy and acceptance are whether they're for the opposite sex, the same sex, or indeed both sexes. They, those desires go right to the core of who we are. But Jesus did claim, interestingly, I guess I alluded to it a little bit when I was speaking to the children during worship. Jesus did claim that he came so that human beings could have abundant life. He said, I've come that you may have abundant life, full life, multicolored life, flourishing life, That was the claim that he made. I think what Jesus was effectively claiming was that your freedom to choose, when you come to me, will actually be trumped by the freedom to be what you were created to be. I mean, look at it in a different way. You probably recognize this uh, famous statue of Michelangelo's David. I figured in a talk like this, it made sense to have some sort of nude body at some point. (laughs) And... uh, It's obviously carved out of marble, as you probably know. And uh, over the years, lots of people have used Michelangelo's David uh, to illustrate the biblical concept of human flourishing. I guess it's fair to say that that original block of marble from which David came, that could have remained as it was. In that sense, it, it it could have been free to stay as it was. It would have been free as a block of marble to be a block of marble. But actually, Michelangelo set to work on it. He sculpted it. He chipped away at it. And and the argument goes that actually, this statue was freed from the block of marble into something far more ornate and beautiful, far more flourishing than the original block of marble that it it was in, even though, of course, it had to have lots and lots of bits chipped off it. But you could say that it it was freed from its block, to be something beautiful and ornate. And it's a picture, some would say, of the biblical view of human flourishing. Because God is passionate, the Bible says, about forming us into something beautiful, something flourishing, something that reflects him. Maybe I can look at it a different way and give you a slightly more personal example, which I'm hesitant to do, partly because it's personal, but more because... Guys, I just don't want to be the guy who stands here and claims to know how you feel. Not least about something in terms of sexual ethics and sexuality, which is so deeply personal and unique to many of us. I don't want to be that guy. So with that in mind, let me say this. that It's fair to say that I I personally I was single and celibate for a number of years before marrying my wife uh, five months ago. And I'm 36 later on this year. And so speaking personally, I I can't tell you how many times being single or or not being sexually active felt restrictive, felt unnatural, felt, frankly, contrary to my desires. To live within God's constraints, although philosophically I knew they were for my flourishing, often felt like I was just a, a, a block of marble being chipped at being hacked away at almost, painful, deeply painful. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it makes you question, is this for my good? It doesn't feel like good, it doesn't feel like human flourishing. But looking back on that time, I've got to say I'm so grateful, I really am so grateful for it. I'm so grateful primarily because God showed me in that time how true intimacy, true deep connection, true acceptance that I yearn for and I think all of us do is ultimately to be found in him. And getting married, my wife hasn't trumped that. I'm just so grateful really for the sculpting (laughs) that I experienced even though often it felt like I was being chipped away at. And please hear me, the point I'm making (laughs) is not look at what a beautiful statue I've become now I'm in a heterosexual marriage. It's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that to, to submit ourselves to God's constraints as by his grace, I and many others here will continue to do, ultimately is a deeply freeing process, not least, in fact, primarily because that process draws us into his arms, the only arms that can truly sustain us and satisfy our longings and provide us with the unconditional love and acceptance that all of us, if we're honest, crave. Whether it's to do with our sexuality or our speech or our use of money or how we view those in poverty, when you explore Christ and decide to be a follower of Christ, What Jesus then calls us to then is to allow him to change us and form us into something truly beautiful that reflects him and experientially is a flourishing, flourishing thing. So let's just pause and take stock. What have we said? Firstly, everyone cares who you sleep with and so why would God be any different? Secondly, if God had a timeless ethical standard, wouldn't you expect it to challenge every society at some point? And for us in our society, the particular challenges come with how he defines both sex and even more broadly human flourishing. Now, final third step. I want to turn the question back on us a little bit. I want to ask a question. Why do we care so much who we sleep with? to put it a different way. Why are the stakes so high when it comes to sex? What I mean? Well, I've got, I've got a friend who is a very committed runner and so he will sacrifice all kinds of things to that end. He'll go to bed early so he can get up early and train. He, he won't eat certain foods or drink certain drinks so that he can train and perform. He, he will forsake other leisure, social activities so he's able to train because of the higher good, of, of flourishing and running well. We all sacrifice things for things we believe in. To take it a bit further, I think it's fair to say that in just in this borough, Borough of Kingston, we have all kinds of people who will believe that we should abstain from, or at least have very tight restrictions on, all kinds of things. Cars, alcohol, shopping at certain shops, meat, money, Hygiene, cheese, having a foreskin, energy. People will sacrifice all kinds of things because their highest authority, or their God, you could say, says they should. And we don't think it's that weird when people say, because of my beliefs, the higher authority that I refer to, then there are certain restrictions that I place on myself. Foods, alcohol, uh, having a foreskin. We, we understand that because you're a Jew or a Muslim or a vegan, then these are normal things to do. They're commitments to a higher authority, to being part of that community. But when Christians say that part of our commitment to God is that he places restrictions on our sex lives, then there is very considerable pushback. And my question is, why? Why is that? Why are we prepared to sacrifice so many things but not sex. I'm not claiming to have the definitive answer on this, but I would speculate that maybe it's because sex is now regarded as the highest good there is. And therefore, the ability to have sex with whomever you like is a fundamental right. That must not be denied. And if it is, it causes a deeply felt emotional objection. It's the thing for which we'll make any number of sacrifices. And it's the thing for which we'll defend fiercely if it's challenged. Sex has become, is it not, something of a god in our culture. And the Bible isn't that surprised by that. And you have to read books like Deuteronomy. And and you see the Bible is very aware that people in all civilizations and cultures will always find, if you like, other gods to give their worship to, their attention to, their priority to, the thing that they cherish and prize the most the bible knows that will happen let's face it in our society today you are regarded as deeply weird or, or suffering if you're not having sex when did you last see a film with a celibate hero i haven't watched my fair share of films i, I haven't i haven't seen one I'm not sure there is one and yet the christian view has always been that singleness and celibacy can absolutely lead to a very rich and full and flourishing life. As Jesus would testify, Paul, who wrote so many, of, so many of the letters of the New Testament, was single. Many Christian heroes throughout the centuries have been single and celibate. People in this room are single and celibate, and many would say it can absolutely lead to a deeply fulfilled life. So you've got very different thoughts, haven't you, now? Two competing schools of thoughts, I guess. Between uh, what uh, most people, if you like, are saying and what Christians are saying. Not just about what sex is, but then even more about whether it's possible to even lead a flourishing life without it. That's kind of where we've got to, I think, in our day. And so when someone hears me, maybe when you hear me this morning, if you hear me or Christians or God say, sex is to be used in this context and not that context, Whether you're a heterosexual person or a gay person, you won't just hear sex is only in that setting. You'll also hear you can't have a full and flourishing life without it. Because that's the message that I think we're now fed. And I want to suggest not that God is wrong for saying that sex is a gift to be used in a certain context, but that our culture has got it wrong when it says you have to have sex to have a full and flourishing life. Now, for some, following Christ does cost you your sex life. Not if you're uh, a man and woman who are married, but if, for example, you're a single person and you're sleeping with different partners, then yeah, following Jesus does cost you your sex life. And many people will say, if following Jesus costs me that, it's just too high a bar, too high a price to pay, Well, it's my suggestion and and to a degree it's been my experience that when you meet Jesus as he really is, (laughs) when you meet with his kindness, with his acceptance, with his forgiveness, with his tenderness, with his unique understanding of what it is to be human because he left the heavens and became one, you start to say what so many Christians have said over the centuries. I'll do anything to follow Jesus. He's worth it. see, our culture has a deeply held commitment that you have to have sex to have a fulfilled life. And I get that because it is a deeply felt thing. But I do think the reason it's become such a deeply felt objection is because of our culture's view of what sex is and what human flourishing therefore is. If this is really hard for you, well done for, for being here and for listening, and thank you for, for staying with me. We've said three things so far as we've looked at why does God care who I sleep with. Firstly, everyone cares who we sleep with, and so why would God be any different? Secondly, if God had a timeless ethical standard, wouldn't you expect it to challenge every society, including ours? And it's the case for our society that it's, it's because what's so... so It's because what God regards sex as is different to what we regard sex as. And equally, where I think so many of us would say that personal choice is at the uh, source of human flourishing, God the Father, the eternal God would say no. There are constraints at play and that is what ultimately leads to human flourishing. People becoming what they were created to be. And thirdly, we said, why, don't we, why do not we care so much who we sleep with? Well, because we've reached a time in history where sex has become like a God. It's the highest authority. It can't be questioned. And therefore, to have limits placed on it about who can access it and, and how, by God, is unacceptable for many of us. All of that to say, and for some of you, there are all kinds of things just pinging through your head at the moment. All that to say, the most important thing I think you can hear this morning, whether you're visiting or not, is this. God loves people. God loves people, gay or straight, single or married, female or male, celibate or promiscuous, faithful or adulterous. God loves people. And he calls all people everywhere to turn around from their old ways and to trust him for a better way. You see, nobody at King's Church is going around trying to find out who's sleeping with who so we can yell at them about it. It's not our goal. It's not my goal. Ultimately, what we want for you, for as many people as possible, is to explore and encounter God. That is our primary ambition. The God who says... I know why you experience such a hunger for intimacy and acceptance in human relationships. I made you like that. The God who says, and that is ultimately a picture. It's a a shadow. It's a clue of your need for me. The God who says, Whether you're in a loving, committed marriage or you're having lots of different sexual encounters or whether you're single or whether you're celibate, the deep longing that you experience for something more is to be found in me. That's the God we want you to consider, to explore, to study and to encounter. The God who in Jesus extends a a hand of forgiveness and kindness and love and acceptance. The God who has done all that needs to be done For you to come to him, hear this, as you are. As you are. To be fully known and fully loved. As you are. That's the invitation of the gospel. And if you get to a place where you want to follow God, you want to follow Jesus because of who he is and, and what he's done and how he lived and how he died and rose, then... Then we might say, well, yeah, you might say, how does that, how does that work? How do I, how do I do that? How do I follow God? And then we'd have a conversation about what that means, what it means for your sex life, what it means for money, what it means for how we view poverty and how we speak and so forth. But if that's not where you're at this morning, or you're listening to this, that's not where you're at. You might say, I might be exploring initially, but I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't know if God actually exists. That's fine. That really is fine. We don't, we don't know or, or frankly care who you're sleeping with. We, we love you. We're glad that you came. We're glad you're listening to this. We're glad to be connected with you. We want you here. We really do want you here. We want you here to be able to be free, to explore, to ask, and maybe even to encounter God we're going to sing in a few moments and, and later Becca will lead us in communion for those for whom that's appropriate. And if this is you that I'm speaking to, why not use this time to just use the time to reflect on what you've heard? Because if that is you, this, this is going to be all kinds of things. Probably lots of objections pinging around. Use this time to reflect. You might you might even want to explore prayer, maybe for the first time. You might want to use the music and the, the time that we have to to pray, you may know, want to pray something like, God, I, I don't know if you exist, if you do, I, I don't know if Jesus died for me and actually was risen from life to death, and I certainly don't know what it means for my sexuality and sexual ethics, should I choose to follow you, but if you're there, would you reveal yourself to me, would I experience something of you? You can pray that. Band, why don't you come and join us? And these guys and girls are going to help us to do exactly that through singing and music. And of course, for many of us in this room, we we do want to follow Jesus. We are following Jesus. We do want to continue exploring what that means. We haven't stopped exploring the gospel and Jesus and what it means to follow him from day to day. So in these moments, I want you... I want you to specifically consider the place that sex holds in your life. And I know I'm pressing some pretty raw buttons. But this is a safe place for you to consider, to reflect, to sing. Ask yourself this if you are following Jesus. How do you see sex at the moment? How do you perceive it? As a source of joy or a source of frustration? Do you see it as a gift for a particular context or something that you're entitled to? Do you see it as a good thing or has it become a god thing that you cherish the most? Listen, if you've got it wrong, the answer is always the same. Come to Jesus. It's always the answer. The gospel it wrong come to Jesus in these moments for forgiveness if you're finding it hard I know some of you are come to Jesus for strength and encouragement if you're thankful come to Jesus in gratitude Let's stand and we're going to sing a wonderful song that helps us come to Jesus it's called when I survey and it's going to help us come to Jesus I would urge and encourage you to come to Jesus in whatever way is most appropriate.